Uh, my name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here at the Hallows Church. If this is your first time with us, welcome. Um, you know, guys, the sun's out. The sun is out. The sun is shining. Praise to the Lord. I'm just kidding. Um, and it's the Super Bowl. It's happening. It's here. I know, Betsy laughed because I don't really care that much. <laughs> but yes, it is here. I hope everyone has some, uh, some fun plans for this afternoon. Um, this, mass, this message this morning, um, uh, Amber read for us the first three verses, but we're actually going to be doing a big broad sweep over chapter 13. We're going to be kind of taking a bird's eye view of chapter 13. So if you want to uh, uh, pull out your Bibles, open up there. We're going to be walking through to, excuse me, together. And um, if you have a pen with you, too, and you want to take some notes, that would also be, also be helpful. Um, so let's pray before we, we dive in. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this, this sunny, great, wonderful day that we can come praising your name. Thank you, God, for all that you do in our lives and how you take each one of us. And though we have different pasts, we have different history, we have different complexities within our, our lives, that yet you, you shape our hearts and turn us towards you and make us more like Jesus. Thank you, Father, for how you do that. And we pray, God, as we are reading and learning about this process, that we would glean wisdom from chapter 13 this morning. Thank you for your grace in our lives. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. So before we, uh, before we dive in, um, I wanted to ask you guys if you've ever experienced this before. This happens to me all the time, and I wonder if it's like having a bunch of kids and maybe there's some sleep deprivation that goes on um, in my life, but I find that every now and then I'll be doing something kind of random, you know, like mowing the lawn or, or fixing something in the house, and then just a memory will like be brought into my mind and it will sit there and it's completely random. It doesn't have anything to do with what's going on at hand. Um, but then I'll, it's, I can take it and I can almost like hold it in my hand and kind of look at it from different angles. And I can kind of see a new perspective. And when I'm kind of resonating and thinking deeper on that, on that memory, it's almost like I can see where God was and where he's kind of moving and where he is in it and how that, maybe that memory has kind of changed me right now. But they're totally random. And so um, as I was, this week as I was thinking through different things, I had this random, totally off memory of my high school English teacher saying this one statement, life is meaningless and filled with nothing. Deep. Kind of weird, huh? <laughs> I almost thought of being like, and I was reading to my children, and then this thought came into my mind. I was like, I don't know if that would go, if that would translate right away. <laughs> so, no, I wasn't reading or anything. I was doing something. I can't remember what it was. But this memory popped into my mind, and I, I thought, Life is meaningless and leads to nothing. That's the statement that he said that stuck with me. Now, I want to give you a little background of this uh, high school English teacher. His name was Joe. He's an interesting individual because he went by his first name, Joe. He was like the teacher, you know, he didn't want to go by his last name, Mr. Richardson or whatever it was, because that was his father, right? He went by Joe, and he, and he had a black belt in karate. It's pretty cool. All of the high school students looked up to Joe. Everyone looked up to him, and he was like the most cultured guy. He would have 
different flags from different places that he'd been in the world. And yet one day in class, he's entertaining this conversation with, um, with a student and talking about existentialism. Why we were learning about existentialism in high school, I have no idea. But there we were, a class filled with high school students, looking up at Joe, and he says, life leads to nothing. And that was a pretty crazy statement. And if you don't know what existentialism is or the philosophy behind it, I tried to find a quote that was kind of similar to this talk that was giving. And it says this. It says, while you live, nothing happens. The scenery changes. People come in and go out. But that's all. There are no beginnings. Days add on to days without rhyme or reason. And as a teen, as I was sitting in my desk hearing that, I sat quietly, but on the inside, I was on fire. There was so much happening to me because in that same moment, when I heard that, I also heard another voice. And it wasn't necessarily an audible voice, but it was this resounding feeling inside of me that said, don't you believe that for one second? That is not true. And as a teen, I couldn't really process it now, but now when I can take that memory and I can hold it out, I can see how God was quickly protecting me from a dark philosophy, because at that time, I was in a really rough place in my life. I had just moved out. I was a high school student. I had just moved out of my house, and I was living with friends at the time, and uh, because of my, my current situation, the school had kind of deemed me an independent person, and so they were helping me with subsidizing me for lunches so that I could eat and breakfast, and helping me and providing extra counseling and extra time that I could study so that I could graduate on time. And to hear, from my background, to hear a statement like that could have, if God was not there, could have, brought me down a path of embracing that nothing matters. But when I hold that memory, I see God was quick to cast out those thoughts because I saw that I wasn't writing my own story. God had swept me up into his. He was showing me that I had a part to play in the inner workings of this grand story that's, that's very significant, that led and it leads and brought me stability and is far more satisfying than anything else. And our passage today, this chapter that we're going to be sweeping through, is, shows us that this experience is shared that this experience is shared and felt the same way amidst believers, we'll discover how God sweeps his children up into this grand narrative, this story of how each character, full of different complexities and histories, come to reflect the heart of Jesus. So first what I want to do is we're going to kind of dive in and zone in on those, those opening verses that Amber read for us, verses 1 through 3. And this is, we're going to see how Jesus' heart reflects passion for all peoples. So as we see, there's this lift, list of names, and the character, this story begins, this chapter begins with prophets and teachers coming together. They're coming together to pray and fast over the Holy, for the Holy Spirit's direction. 
So what we see is these five men are holding different roles, right? They have the titles of prophets and teachers, kind of have different functions in the church, but they're all now gathered in Antioch. And by their titles and descriptions, what we can really glean from that is that they were highly attuned to the Holy Spirit's movement in the church. And as their hearts are postured in worship, this call to missions appears as well. And we're going to find that worship and witness go together and are always wedded, to, wedded together in God's story. Then we have Barnabas and Saul, two pastors of this congregation. They've been serving there for over a year. They're now called out by the Holy Spirit, and they're affirmed by others that they are now the chosen ones to go embark on this brand new mission to take the gospel to a new world, to a new island that hasn't heard it. They're now the missionaries. But why do we want to know these names? What, what's important about them? Why did Luke show us this? Why did he document this? What is God showing us through here? Well, I think what we can see is, is that all of these men, though they're in Antioch now, they all come from different places. They all have different history. Simeon and Lucius, they come from Cyrene, which is over in northern Africa. Manian is considered or was located probably to be a Roman, and he had some courtly uh, companions and courtly connections. Saul is Jewish. He's from Tarsus. Barnabas is from Cyprus, the island that they're going to be sent to. People just like us from different backgrounds, different places, desire, reflecting and desiring the same mission with the same heart coming together as the church to reach out beyond the walls so that they can respond to the Spirit's activity. They didn't let their different cultures or different background hinder them from seeking the Lord's direction. They didn't put precedence over one another's background, but instead they came together in unity. Simeon, or what we could say, we could also call him Simon, same name, had been given a Ro Roman name, Niger, which means from North Africa. And this man, I think, has a particular experience that I, can, that I think we can really see how God was moving and bringing him into his story. So though we don't know much about him, there's a real interesting note that Luke wants to, to write. He gives us, he, he basically brings him up before another time. In Luke chapter 23, verses 26, we have this moment where Jesus is carrying his cross outside of the city of Jerusalem to be crucified. And he had just been tortured. He had just been ridiculed, and a crowd is following him out carrying his cross, but he can't carry it because he's so exhausted that he's been tortured for so long. And as this crowd is gathering outside, there was one man who was coming into the town. Simon, from, or what we could say, Simeon, from Cyrene. He was coming in, and 
verse 26 says, As they led him away, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian who was coming in from the country, and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. We find the same man. His history is that he was first, his first experience with Jesus is to be treated like a criminal with Jesus. He didn't know who Jesus was. But because of his ethnicity, because he was outside of the town, he was forced to act like a criminal with Jesus. That's, I mean, that's unfair, he thought. That's unjust. What kind of town is this? What kind of city is this? I'm coming in here, and now this is happening to me. This probably led to bitterness as he sees the crowd of Jews around him ridiculing him as he carried the cross for Jesus. But later, as he would pull out that memory and reflect on it, he would see and discover that he wasn't carrying Jesus' cross. Jesus was carrying his. He would later discover that and think to himself, though I carried the cross for him, he died on the cross for me. Think about how amazing that is. A man whose first contact with Jesus was carrying his cross is now a man directly responsible for sending out the story of the cross to the world. That's a story to tell. That's incredible. I love how this connection of history and being swept up into God's story and being able to see a memory with a new perspective. And each of us, we have a story to tell. Each of us has a memory to behold when we knew him not, but yet he knew us. Simon's story is just like ours, and I love uh, Henry Francis Light's poem where he says, While here, alas, I knew but half his love, but half discern him, and but half adore. But when I meet him in the realms above, I hope to love him better and praise him more and feel and tell amid the choir divine that now I know how fully I am his and he is mine. How has God changed you like he's changed Simon? What memory do you have to behold? A heart responding to the Spirit's activity will be given the courage required to share it. Because here our story moves into a new direction. Barnabas and Saul, being sent out by the Spirit, they sail to Cyprus. Let's read verses 5 through 8. 5 through 8 says, Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. When they, when they traveled the whole island as, as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But Elemas the sorcerer, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So we have Barnabas and Saul along with John. Now let's not get it confused. That's actually John Mark, not John the Apostle. 
John Mark was an assistant to some of the apostles and the disciples when they were going on different journeys, and um, we'll learn more about him in just a few minutes. But Barnabas, Saul, and John Mark, they're preaching the word across the island. They're starting in Salamis, and they're ending up in Paphos. So this is Barnabas's hometown. This is his culture. He knows, he knows what's going on here. He knows the culture well, and they were strategic because they started off on the eastern side of the island, and then they traveled inland um, from Salamis all the way to Paphos. And what's interesting is what we find in this is that cities are named based off of the descriptions of the people within them or the, what they're kind of known for. Salamis means shaken, uneasy. It means agitated. Paphos means suffering. This kind of led me on a thought of what is Seattle known for, right? What is Seattle known for? We know it's from Chief Seattle, who's a Native American chief. Honestly, I did not know that. I had to look it up, but... Now that you all know, did anyone really know? Probably. I knew. I just forgot for a, a moment. So I'm, I wanted to know, though, what is Seattle known for? That was the first Google search. That's what I, that's what I brought up. So I was going to ask you, what do you think it's known for? The first, the first thing is rain. Anybody have another one? Coffee's number two. Yep. It's the third. You guys are doing great. Space Needles, number three. Good. Very good. You guys got this. Rain, coffee, Space Needle. Listen, I know you're sensitive. Seahawks weren't on the list, but it's okay. I'm going to put it on there for you. Okay? For you guys. Grunge was fourth. Technology. Here's when things start to get dark. Heroin. Depression. Polite but distant friendliness, what people would consider the Seattle freeze. And the last one was loneliness. Each city has complexities. Each city is known for something. But there's also darkness in every city. So what we want to ask is, how will the light come? And it's found here through Christians serving and preaching the Word of God. Our deeds and proclaiming God's Word are the salt and light that this city needs so desperately. The lost need encouragement through gospel-motivated deeds and gospel proclamation. We can't have one without the other. Matthew 5:14 You are the light of the world a city situated on a hill cannot be hidden and later in verse 16 in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven I love this uh, David Bosch a South African missiologist he says this um, in response to a quote that's widely said from Francis of Assisi. It says, preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. Some of us are familiar with that, right? But this is what he said in response to that. Of course words are necessary. 
unexplained deeds in themselves do not constitute the mission of God's people. Let me say that again. Unexplained deeds in themselves do not constitute the mission of God's people. Barnabas and Saul always told people about the hope that was within them and where their motivation to serve came from. So much so that Sergius Paulus, this government official, he hears, he hears that there is a gospel movement in the island. And he invites Barnabas and Saul so that he can hear the encouraging word. And they are given the courage to go and encourage him. He hears the word of God, but he's never seen it before. So he, he invites them over to share this message, so they can share this message that they've been telling the whole island. But as we've seen in other parts of Acts, there's someone else who gets word of this as well. Bar Jesus, a false prophet, had been over the shoulder of this government official and whispering lies and, and telling him. It's very much like, think about like um, Wormtongue from Lord of the Rings. If you guys have seen that, the King of Rohan, he's sitting there and he's, there's this like slimy kind of greasy guy behind him and he's always whispering in his ear. And it almost sounds like the truth, but it's a lie wrapped in truthful statements. This is what we want to believe by this this false prophet bar jesus because bar jesus means son of jesus so you can already see the bad news from right there right but luke is quick to write out his real name he said alimus he's not he's not a prophet he's a sorcerer alimus the sorcerer he's threatened by by barnabas and saul because he thinks if Sergius hears the true gospel, then he'll recognize the false messages and the lies that I've been saying for power. So Alimus gets to work. He's whispering in his ear. He's manipulating the stories to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Now, I think this is just my speculation, but given the motive for Alimus, being that it's power, I think that I wonder if the submission to Jesus as Lord is what he was trying to twist. He says, of course you can believe Jesus. Yeah, of course you can believe Jesus, but you don't have to listen to him. You don't have to follow him. You are your own ruler. Do what you want. Listen to my advice and my counsel. That's taking a straight path and, and twisting it. And Saul will have none of it. He sees the manipulation at hand, and with courage, he confronts Alimus in verse 9 through 11. It says, But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Alimus and said, You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil, an enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Look, now the Lord's hand is against you. You are going to be blind and will not see the sun for some time. And then immediately a mist and darkness fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. 
Saul is given the courage to confront. But did you notice what happened? Did you notice what happened here? In verse 9, Saul became Paul. This moment of confrontation marks the transition of leadership. From here on out, it is no longer Barnabas and Saul. It is Paul and his companions. This is an incredible juxtaposition of events because in this climactic moment of God visibly manifesting his judgment on Elimus, Saul, a name meaning big, becomes Paul, meaning little. This is such a David and Goliath moment here. You have the little one coming before, declaring judgment, just like David and Goliath, because it's not Paul's story. It's God's. God is the one orchestrating this event. Paul is simply there following as a character, seeing how God is working things out. But he couldn't have done it. He couldn't have done it with a big confidence, with his posture. What he exemplified in this, and Barnabas too, is he must increase, I must, incre I must decrease. Becoming like Christ is growing down. Becoming like Christ is growing down. Saul becomes Paul in this moment. And Barnabas moves to the side. Now, I think that's really incredible because it, we should consider a couple of things. First, maybe you're like Paul. Maybe the Holy Spirit works in you and gives you a boldness and a confidence to call sin out and call people to repentance. If that, we should be excited and support you in that as long as that confident, um, that confident confrontation leads to repentance and is in humility. We don't want to just be calling out miss to come on down and make people blind for no reason, right? Now, but maybe we're also like Barnabas because what happened with Barnabas is quite incredible too. Notice that he was not bitter. He wasn't upset that he was moved down. He happily took the place of second because he saw what God was doing in God's grand narrative. And he was perfectly content in the position that he was in. And I tell you what, I think it's not in there. But I can't think of anybody else that would have been standing shoulder to shoulder with Sergius while all of this was going on. Because Barnabas was a pastor. He was someone who supported others. He gave people a second chance, and he would sit by them, showing them the truth and leading them towards Jesus, towards love. He brings constant encouragement, and maybe you're like a Barnabas. And if so, we are thankful for you, and we're thankful for that encouragement. He happily relinquishes leader, his leadership so that Paul can step up. But maybe you're Sergius. Maybe you're a new believer. And if so, Sergius witnessed God rescuing him. 
Jesus went to great lengths to rescue you. When someone says life is nothing, don't believe it for a second. Because there's nothing that's going to come between you and God. Sergius saw in this moment the twisted darkness of Alemus. And he saw for what it truly was because the light of the gospel shined brightly in his heart. Do you see the multiple ways that God is, uses his people to bring courage and to make our hearts more like Jesus? Barnabas, he steps to the side. Paul, he stands up. Sergius is saved. And John Mark leaves. John Mark departs. Wait, what happened? What's going on here? I thought everything was really cool. Why is someone leaving? Let's find out in verse 13. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Persia and Pamphylia. But John, or John Mark, left them and went back to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know why, but this is a significant moment worth paying attention to. Verse 13, because we don't know why, but John Mark, he didn't want to continue. Maybe it was the fear or the intensity of the mission at hand. But for whatever the reason, he said, I'm out. And he left them right as they were about to trek and move on and travel up to one of the, these mountains that was known for its robbery and known for like, you need support, you need people with you if you were going to travel into this place. And in that moment, John Mark left. Paul would consider this him, consider this as him deserting them. In Acts 15, uh, 37 through 38, there's a discussion between Paul and Barnabas, and they were deciding on who they should take with them on their next adventure. And Barnabas, being that second chance kind of guy, right? We love Barnabas. Being that second chance kind of guy, he says, let's bring John Mark. But Paul remembers and brings back this moment where he remembers that Mark had left them. And so he says no. He remembers when, they le when he left them in Pamphylia. And the disagreement is so strong that Barnabas and Paul split up and go separate ways. But that's not the end of the story. Because they come back, and they come back together, and this is what we can learn. This valuable lesson from Mark is the courage to return. First, we get to see that Mark was really young. He was really young, and he made this quick decision without thinking, perhaps, about all of the repercussions that would happen. Who can identify with that? Thank you. I'm glad I'm not alone. I have this infamous story in my family of, of me when, uh, when, I was, when I was like a teenager, and I was... It's like having some type, I wanted to go hang out with my friends, and I was really into skateboarding. And I was like, I'm going to go skateboard with my friends. And my parents said, no, you can't do it. And I said, I don't care. I'm going anyway, right? And I'm going to skateboard to their house. I was in Bothell. I skateboarded to Snohomish. Seven hours later, at 2 a.m., I'm calling my mom from the gas station, having her pick me up. That was not a good decision. I remember that, that, that moment. Snohomish was pretty far. It took a really long time. 
Bad idea. But I don't want to talk about me anymore. I want to talk about him. <laughs> what we see in his story is we see that there's a courage to return because though he left, though he abandoned his friends, he deserted them, God was not done with him. And he would not let a past mistake like that define who he was and define his part in God's story. Because 20 years later, 20 years later, John Mark would have compiled enough information and God used him to be the author of the gospel according to Mark. An incredible task. For someone with a history of deserting his friends. There is courage in returning. And we don't know our own story. Like, we don't know other people's stories. And Paul didn't either because later he would, he would come back around and there was a reconciliation between all of them where Paul would later write, and he would say, when Luke was with him, he would say, bring Mark along with you because he's useful to me. C.S. Lewis wrote of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan. He's telling Shasta in the book, His Horse and His Boy. He says, child, I am telling you your story, not hers. I tell no one any story but his own. All of us, have a memory to behold and hopefully we see maybe if it's not right now but maybe we'll see soon the courage of God calling us and bringing us and returning us back and showing us what was happening in that moment Paul and Barnabas continued on their journey and they finally reached Poseidon, uh, Poseidon synagogue here in the synagogue, they share the message of the gospel. Now, what we see here, what we've seen thus far, I think is summarized in this sermon that Paul gives to his people, to this, this people. It's a vast group of, of mixed people. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, there's, you know, everyone is together, and they're asked to share a word of encouragement. Paul stands, and he shows everyone present how the gospel is a message that's filled with history. It's a message of good news that personally impacts all of us and calls us to respond. So first, it's a historical message. Now, we're going to kind of do a little, a broad sweep through this because I want to point out one thing, and this is where I think your pen would be helpful, is as we're walking through this sermon, I want you to see how much emphasis is on God's action? God is the one acting. He is the creator and author of this story. Verse 17, the God of Israel chose our ancestors, made the people pros prosper. Verse 18, for 40 years, he put up with them. Verse 19, then he gave them land. Verse 20, he gave them judges. 21 and 22, he gave them kings. Verse 23, he brought them Jesus. Verse 30, God raised him from the dead. Verse 33, God has fulfilled this 
for us. Verse 37, the one God raised up, Jesus, will never decay. History is given to us to see the message of God's ultimate action of bringing the good news to shared to all people. This historical message is a gospel message. We find that in verse 26. It is to us that the word of this salvation has been sent. Verse 32, we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our ancestors. He wants to show everyone the truth of the gospel that all of our histories and complexities and pasts, everything, we see we can be swept up into the story of God's grand narrative, a full history. What does this good news mean to us? What does it mean for us? Verse 38 and 39, I think, speak to that, where he says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers and sisters, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. Everyone who believes is justified through him, from everything that you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. He's speaking to two different types of people, Jews and Gentiles, because the Jews who relied so heavily on the law, they see that it will not justify them because they could never fulfill that. Jesus fulfilled the law for them. And the Gentiles, there's forgiveness in sin. There's forgiveness to be swept up, and there is a, a call to be justified through his forgiveness of sins. You have been justified for everything. Your story is God's story now. Those swept up into his story. To be found in his grand narrative is to be found in the gospel. It is only through Jesus that we find forgiveness. We find redemption. We find justice. And we are made new. That's good news. That's the good news. Not only is God's grand narrative historical and it's a gospel message, but it is deeply personal. It is a personal message that we are called to respond to. And here we have such a stark contrast of response. In one sense, we have the Gentiles who have heard this these people are, are just not Jewish. That's, that's all it is. They, there's this explosion of, of celebration. Everyone is rejoicing. Everyone is rejoicing and praising Jesus to see how they are now swept up into God's story and how they are too a child of God. And in the same sense, there are rocks being thrown by the Jews at Saul, or I'm sorry, at Paul and Barnabas for them to leave. There is a complete rejection of the gospel. Verse 46 and 48, Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, meaning the Jews. Since you reject it and judge others for yourselves, unworthy of eternal life, 
we are turning to the Gentiles. I mean, we are going to be speaking to these people who have been embraced this, for this is what the Lord has commanded of us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Paul and Barnabas though there were such stark differences, are completely content with the results of this mission. While the Jews rejected them, God was doing something powerful. This historical gospel message was personally embraced. They too had a new story to tell. One declaring that God is big and I am small. And yet he still calls me his own. This is the message that we want to bring. A message that was brought to an agitated, shaken, and suffering city. It's also taken to a lonely city. Through us, we can share the good news of the gospel. And we can pray that it would have the same effect on this island, joy. Joy is the result of this, this gospel message being brought to them. God sweeps his children up into his grand narrative. Each person, each person full of complexities in history, comes to reflect the heart of Jesus and is filled with joy. Would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is our prayer, that you would fill us with joy, that we would not let our pasts define us that we wouldn't let our past mistakes define us, but that we would see how grand and big and amazing you are and how you are the ones who sweep us up into your story so that we may be the hands and feet of Jesus as we seek to share the gospel in this city through both our actions and our words. Help us, help us in this effort, God. Help us share this historical gospel message and let it be personally accepted to, to everyone it contacts. But let us also, God, be content with knowing that we are not the authors, but you are. Thank you, Father, for this time. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.